Well, everyone loves a redemption story. Everyone loves a story of second chances. There are many to tell. One that springs to my mind is that of Chuck Colson. It's a name that many are familiar with, and it's a story many are familiar with. It does make for a good redemption story. From 1969 to 1973, Colson was made special counsel to President Richard Nixon. He worked with special interest groups like organized labor, veterans, farmers, and his job was to win their support on key issues, yet he was described as an evil genius in an evil administration. Colson later described himself saying, he was valuable to the president because I was willing to be ruthless in getting things done, end quote. During Nixon's reelection, Colson appointed E. Howard Hunt to gather intel on the Democratic Party. Hunt, in turn, led a burglary of a psychiatrist's office in September of 1971. And the purpose behind this was to uncover some dirt on a man named Daniel Ellsberg, who was in the process of leaking some information that would have been very damaging to support for the Vietnam War. And the administration wanted to get some dirt on him to discredit him. Things didn't go as planned, though. They got caught, and this all later came to be known as the Watergate scandal. Colson denied organizing this burglary, but he was a part of the cover-up. And on March 1st, 1974, he was indicted for this. But during this time, a close friend gave him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And God, through this book, worked in his life, and Colson came to salvation became a Christian. He even joined a prayer group with Democrats in it. At the time, news outlets ridiculed him, saying this was just for show. This was just trying to reduce his sentencing. But he was serious. During his trial, he desired to be truthful. He ended up pleading guilty to obstruction of justice at a time when the judge was about ready to dismiss his charges. He was given a one- to three-year sentence. He ended up serving seven months. The following year, in 1975, he penned his memoir about his conversion titled Born Again. And that book actually did a lot to promote the whole born-again movement. While Colson was in prison, though, he witnessed the shortcomings of the justice system. Prisoners weren't being rehabilitated. They were being locked up and forgotten about. It was through this experience that Colson discerned the call of God on his life to minister to prisoners. So the following year, 1976, he founded the Prison Fellowship with the goal of reforming the prison system and promoting faith-based rehabilitation. Over the next 35 years, Prison Fellowship and Colson would do much to serve the Lord and minister the gospel. His grand political aspirations were gone, and he devoted his life to serving the Lord in a much more meaningful way. He later wrote this about himself, quote, All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. Only when I lost everything I thought made Chuck Colson a great guy had I found the true self God intended me to be and the true purpose of my life. It is not what we do that matters, but what a sovereign God does through us. God doesn't want our success. He wants 
us. He doesn't demand our achievements. He demands our obedience. Victory comes through defeat, healing through brokenness, finding self through losing self, end quote. Here's a man who was messed up in a big way, and he had messed up in a big way. And you could say, actually, for the first 40 years of his life, he was a bad man. But God redeemed him. God changed him, made him new, and greatly used him for the second 40 years of his life. Granted, he was never perfect, but he was redeemed. And stories like this resonate with us. We like redemption stories because we need redemption. We like stories of second chances because we all want second chances at things. And it is for this reason, I'm sure, that that four books capture our heart for a reason. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four Gospels sit at the heart of the Bible for a reason. In telling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they tell the the greatest story of redemption. But as we read, we're not learning of, of Christ's redemption. No, he is the Redeemer. As we sit and go through these books, we learn of our own redemption. Through Jesus, we are redeemed. And today we begin our journey through witnessing the life of Christ and his redemptive work as told by the Gospel of Mark. The four Gospels join together in painting a a harmonious picture of the life of Christ. But at the same time, each of them are unique and present the Savior in a special way. And look forward to, to sharing with you what makes Mark unique and special. Along these lines, I want to begin by giving you some background on Mark. Anytime I start to preach through a new book of the Bible, I like to do a little background work, a little biography work. We know that God is the ultimate author of Scripture, but he chose to use human writers to record his word, each using their unique styles and vocabularies and experience to contribute to his word. And this means that by design, the more we learn about Scripture's background, the more we can see in God's word. Studying background opens up some new shades of meaning on the truth. Now that we live in the digital age, I trust you all know what high-definition television is. I think everyone knows by now what that is. In case you don't, it's just normal TV with five times the resolution. Now, this improvement over standard-definition TV is, is really noticeable when you put them side by side. If you were to watch an old golf broadcast on an old TV, you would have a hard time watching that golf ball sail through the air. But not so with HD TV. The program is the same, the message is the same, the content is the same, but it just comes with more detail, a sharper picture, greater depth. And that's like the Bible. In Scripture, the the message is, is crystal clear. It's plain for everyone to see. But understanding the background of Scripture allows you to see the truth like it's in high definition. It makes the picture just jump out at you. As if you can feel the the heat of the Middle Eastern sun as as Jesus teaches on the hillside. As if you can run your hands through the heads of grain as Jesus walks through the field. Or as if you can smell the aroma of the costly perfume that was broken and, and poured on Christ's head. 
Studying background allows you to see God's word in greater depth and color. And for this reason, when I start a new book, I like to throw in a little background study and a little biography study as well. And this is what I want to share with you this morning. The goal today as we prepare to dive into Mark is first to expose you to Mark the gospel and then second to expose you to Mark the man. Why is this book in the Bible and why did God use this person to write it? What can we learn about God and his word from this gospel and this author? And what is this book even about? And what is this man even about? What we come to find is that Mark, the gospel, is an extraordinary tale of redemption. And Mark, the man, is an extraordinary example of redemption. Today we have a very simple two-parter just to give you something to hang your outline on. First, we're going to use the opening verse of Mark to expose you to Mark the gospel. And then we're going to piece together several verses in the New Testament to show you just who Mark the man was. And in both, we will find several significant and encouraging truths about redemption. So with that, I want you to take your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 1. And we'll begin with this first point, Mark the gospel. Mark chapter 1, starting with Mark, the gospel. And we're just going to be looking at this first verse to get us started. The beginning, he writes, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This first verse serves as his introduction, telling us what this is going to be about. And Mark is going to be about the gospel. Many people still don't really know what this word means. It is not a genre of music. Rather, the Romans, they use this word to announce news of victory on the battlefield. The gospel was a good report. It was, it was good news. Likewise, they used it to announce the birth of a new emperor, his coming of age, his ascension to the, to the throne. The gospel back then was just any just exceedingly good news. The Christians came along, though, and they hijacked this word from the Romans because Christ is is such better good news than Caesar. Caesar claimed to be a divine ruler, but he was far from it. Each time, Caesar died. But Jesus was the true God-man, and his coming was the true good news. However, strangely to some, this good news of Jesus was attached to to seemingly this this bad news of his death. The good news was that he died. The the shame of the cross, the scandal of the cross was attached to this gospel. But Christians, they saw through the shame of the cross. They saw the victory of Christ's death, the glory of his death as he paid for sins and rose again. And that is good news. The atonement Jesus made on the cross now brings the ultimate hope for all people to have new life themselves. And there's no better news than that. If you believe and follow Jesus now, you can be saved, you can be forgiven, you can have everlasting life with God. There is no better news. 
And the right response to receiving such good news is to, in turn, tell other people about it. And to be sure, Christians are commanded to to preach the gospel. That's what this means, to proclaim, to tell others the good news that you have received. I mean, isn't this a natural response to good news? It's what we do today from pregnancies to births to engagements to marriages. We just tell people good news. Buying a house, even something as simple as finding $20 in the sidewalk, which happened to me when I was a little kid. It was a good day. We just feel compelled to tell people good news when we receive good news. And the news of Jesus, it is the best news. It is the most hopeful news, and you should feel privileged to share it, excited to tell others about it. And that's what Mark is doing. That's what Mark is about. He's just sharing with you this good news that he received and knew about. He's telling the gospel. This is why, mind you, that Mark's gospel is dominated by the passion narrative. You're wondering what that is. The passion just refers to the last week of Christ's life. And Mark, he devotes 40% of his work to to this last week, the passion of Christ, the last week of his life. Why does he do this? Because that's where the, the good news is really found. Understand this. Mark is not writing a biography of Jesus. This is not a biography. Biographies tell the, the whole story of a person's life from their background, their family, their birth, their childhood, their education, their marriage, their career, their accomplishments. And then they end with just a, a brief note on the person's death. But Mark doesn't do this. There's nothing about the birth of Jesus, his childhood, his life before his ministry, the baptism. <clears throat> this is not your typical biography. I remember back in high school, I had to do some summer reading for AP English, and I chose to read the biography of Harry S. Truman. Uh, I've always been fascinated with World War II, and Truman was the first and only president to authorize the dropping of the two atomic weapons. So I figured it'd be an interesting read. Anyway, in Truman's biography, it's about a thousand pages long, and only 50 pages are devoted to his final days, and just a few to his death. There's just one chapter consisting of about 5% of the entire work. And you're going to find the same thing in all the popular biographies from Martin Luther King Jr. to JFK, you name it. But you won't find the same thing with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of the four, Mark devotes the greatest percentage of his work to the last week, to the last week of Christ's life, his final days. So it's for this reason we don't call these biographies. We call them Gospels. It has become its own genre now. The word, it's a genre. And Mark chapter 1, verse 1 actually introduces us the word gospel as its own genre. This is the gospel according to Mark. Mark is giving us something new, something unique, because Jesus is someone new, someone unique. Keep in mind, he says in verse 1, in regards to this gospel, this is all just a beginning though. Mark 1.1 1, 1 says this is just the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how it begins. 
But by no means is this how it ends. It's because it hasn't ended. The gospel continues today in each of our lives. This explains the abrupt ending to Mark. We don't see this for quite some time, but Mark's gospel ends with the women fleeing the empty tomb and they're, they're afraid to say anything to anyone. And it's over. That's it. It makes you ask, well, wait a second. How can he end so abruptly? Well, the answer is he's not ending. He's beginning. And the resurrection, that's the real beginning of the good news and the church. And as you read Mark, you finish, you're forced to ask, well, wait, what happens next? What happens next? Hopefully you realize that you are the answer. You happen next. How will you respond to this risen Jesus? No matter what, you can't finish Mark's gospel, put it down, chalk it up to a good read, and then just move on. You can't do it. The gospel forces you, it compels you to respond. You must respond, either for it or against it. But you have to respond. Jesus does the same thing. He just forces people to respond. You're either for him or you're against him. And speaking of Jesus, to be crystal clear, this is not just any gospel. Look again at verse 1. This is the gospel of whom? Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here we have a full description of the Redeemer, who is obviously the, the central figure of this book. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, one name, two titles. And each of them telling us something special about the person of Christ. You have first this name, Jesus, his human name. As the the second member of the Trinity came down, took on a, a human nature, he also assumed a human name, Jesus, which itself means the Lord is salvation. And isn't that the case with Jesus? In Mark, we find that the genuine humanity of Jesus on display In just an unreserved manner, he is a true man among men. Jesus eats, drinks, becomes hungry, touches, falls asleep from fatigue. He shows compassion, anger, sorrow, tenderness, love. He has a mother. He has siblings. He turns around to see who touched him. He walks up to a fig tree to find out if there's fruit on it. Jesus has a human body, he has a human nature, and he even dies. This is a man. But do not be mistaken into thinking that this is a mere man. He is at the same time God. And Mark calls him the Son of God, which is a very special title showcasing the the divinity of Christ. John, in his gospel, really shows how Son of God means Jesus is God. For example, John 5.18 says the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he called God his Father, making himself out to be God. It's John 5.18. And also in John 19, verse 7, the Jews, once again, sought to kill Jesus for blasphemy because he called himself the Son of God. So the deity of Jesus is on full display in the Gospel of John. But even in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
you can't escape the fact that this person is divine. Mark shows Christ's total supremacy and authority over all disease and demons and death itself. Every kind of disease is cured. Every kind of demon is cast out. And even even the dead are raised. Jesus also has power over nature from the wind to the waves. He walks on water, makes a fig tree wither. He multiplies bread and fish. He predicts the future. He looks into men's hearts. He even pardons sin and forgives people. And that is only something God can do. Finally, although he dies, he resurrects, never to die again. And this is no mere man. Mark uses the title, Son of God, in a very strategic way in his gospel. The book begins with Mark's confession that Jesus is the Son of God, and it ends with the Roman centurion's confession that Jesus is the Son of God. In between, God the Father himself twice confesses verbally that Jesus is his Son at the baptism and the transfiguration. Also, the demons cannot help but confessing that Jesus is the one true Son of God because they know his true nature. And this title even comes from the mouth of the Pharisees, although not in belief. Overall, it is impossible to read Mark and say that this is a story about just a mere man. He is God and man come together for the purpose of redemption. Now this leads to another title given here, and that is Christ. Today, some people think Christ is his last name. It's the last name of Jesus. Like he was the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. But that is not the case. Christ is not his last name. Although today, it kind of functions that way. Rather, Christ technically is a title. Christos in the Greek means the anointed one. It is the equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. He's the Messiah, God's anointed one. But he wasn't quite the Messiah the Jews wanted or expected. Their hope was in this political Messiah, a conquering David-like figure who would come and through the power of the sword liberate Israel, conquer Rome, and rule the nations from Jerusalem. Now look, there is a future political and national dimension to the Messiah's rule. But the Jews made the mistake of making this their exclusive understanding of the Messiah. And they failed to grasp the more significant spiritual dimension of the Messiah. It is for this reason that they could not comprehend or accept the fact the Messiah had to die, even die on a cross. To them, that, that was impossible. Like Paul said to Jews, that was, the, that was the ultimate stumbling block. They just couldn't get around the fact that the Messiah had to die. To the, to the Greeks, it was just nonsense. Literally, nonsense. That, that doesn't make sense. But to the Jews, they couldn't get around the fact. 
But truly, though, the Messiah did have to suffer and die. And they should have known. It's in the Old Testament. The, the Savior first had to be the suffering servant. The one crushed by God for the iniquities of the many. Displaying to others that Jesus was in fact the Messiah was the church's early uphill battle. That was their battle. I mean, just think, you're trying to spread this new religion, this new movement, where your leader was just executed as a criminal with other criminals by the state. I mean, that's something crazy people do and believe. I mean, who would follow a death row inmate as the Messiah? Of course, we know Jesus wasn't actually a criminal, and he was indeed the Messiah. And a large part of what the Gospels display for the Jews, especially, is that he was truly the Old Testament promised anointed one. But like I said, he wasn't what the people expected. He won no military battles. He did not have an earthly throne. By the time of his death, Rome was still in total control. The Jews were no better off. Surely, some of the Jews thought to themselves, some Messiah. Yet he was. He offered them a a redemption they couldn't even understand. So much more valuable than what they were hoping for. And we will see this time and time again in Mark. This is not the last we will hear of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God in Mark. That's what this gospel is all about. It's good news, and it's good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. This story is about Jesus, and that's why it's so precious to us today. We have the ability, the privilege, the joy to look back and see that the Savior in action, as if he were right there with us today. And he is right there with us today. We get to fellowship with him through his word. Mark, the gospel, is all about Jesus. So much so that Mark, the author, is nowhere to be found. Mark is not in Mark. There's no Mark here. Mark is not even mentioned. The text itself does not even say that it was written by Mark. We're actually left wondering, wait a second, who wrote this? Where did this good news come from? Who is telling this story? And this brings us to the, the second point we want to talk about this morning. First, we had Mark, the gospel. Now I want to give you some background on Mark, the man. Mark, the man. Let's start with this. Who wrote this book? Well, although his name doesn't appear in the text itself, The vast majority of early manuscripts all have the title Mark, the gospel according to Mark. And there is completely unanimous, unanimous early church attestation saying that Mark was the author. This is never contested. It was at the time a well-known fact, even today, not contested. Most likely, Mark did not include his name because one, it's not about him, and two, those to whom he was writing knew it was coming from Mark. So who was Mark writing for? Well, this gospel applies to everybody. 
But once again, there is completely unanimous early church attestation saying that not only did Mark write this, but he wrote it from Rome for Romans. That his audience was Gentile Roman believers. This fact is confirmed when you study Mark itself. There is clearly a Gentile and a Roman orientation to this gospel apart from the others. For example, Mark, as opposed to the other gospels, often uses Latin terms as opposed to their Greek equivalents. Also, we find Mark carefully explaining Jewish customs and rituals as if his audience didn't know what these were. Mark translates Aramaic words whenever they occur. And in Mark, the Old Testament is only directly quoted once, which is perfect if you're writing to a bunch of Roman Gentiles who don't know the Jewish scriptures. Also, we have this interesting fact. Remember that guy who was forced to carry the cross of Jesus for a little while? Remember that guy? Simon of Cyrene? The Gospels mention him, but Mark gives us a little unique fact about him. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, Mark alone mentions, just just out of the blue, that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And that's it. And he just moves on. It makes you pause, like, wait, wait a second. Who are Alexander and Rufus? And why on earth is Mark including this completely random and seemingly meaningless fact in the middle of you know, the passion narrative? Why is he doing this? And he doesn't say in Mark. He just throws it out there. But interestingly, when you read Romans, you know, the gospel to the church at Rome, Romans 16, verse 13, you actually find out that Rufus and presumably Alexander were prominent members of the church in Rome. And so Mark, we find, he he throws this little detail in there because he knows it's going to resonate with his audience in Rome. They all knew Alexander and Rufus, and here, well, here's their father, Simon of Cyrene. Additionally, writing from Rome for those in Rome in particular, we learn a little bit more about Mark's purpose, a special purpose behind his gospel. The best evidence shows that Mark writes just about in the middle of the 60s AD, just after, most likely, Peter's death and the onset of major Christian persecution, the church was facing a major crisis in the 60s. The eyewitnesses of Jesus, including the apostles, that they were starting to die off. They were starting to be killed. And like I mentioned, the church was getting its real first taste of martyrdom. And up to that point, the church largely relied on eyewitnesses and their their teaching to learn about the life of Jesus. People who were there, people who saw him, but now they were starting to die. And so there arose a great need for someone to write down and to preserve the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Mark does. Mark writes to preserve this account of the life of Christ. Mark himself was not an eyewitness. But Peter was. And once again, we don't know this for certain, but every reference we have, completely unanimous early church attestation shows that Mark based much of his gospel 
on the preaching ministry of Peter while they were together in Rome. Speaking of Peter, his death sparked major change for the church. In fact, everything changed after A.D. 64. Before that time, Romans paid little attention to Christians. They're just another religious sect in Rome. There's, there's countless, just another group. No big deal. But in AD 64, that all changed. In that year, a massive fire broke out in Rome. It began near Circus Maximus. Started off small, but the wind picked up and carried it throughout the city. One week went by, and they finally brought the fire under control, but then another came and spread. And when all was said and done, ten of Rome's 14 wards were burnt. Three of them just completely reduced to ash. It was a truly an ancient disaster. Rome was just, just wiped out. And to make matters worse, there was outrage over the fairly common knowledge that this fire was ordered. Emperor Nero, who's one of the worst men ever, gave the order to set fire to the city, and everyone pretty much knew. The ancient historian Suetonius, not a Christian, he writes that this was so obvious that even some of Nero's henchmen were caught red-handed with fire in their hands, lighting people's estates on fire. Nero ordered this fire so that he could clear the slums out because he wanted to make way for a new grand building project. So he just wanted to burn them out start over. But this fire obviously got way out of hand. And now Nero himself was starting to feel the heat. He did all he could to repair the damage. He aided the homeless, gave tax reliefs, lowered the price of grain. He widened the streets, built some new parks, made sure new construction was fireproof, but it just wasn't enough. People were turning on him, and he needed a scapegoat. He needed someone to blame for this fire. He found... Christians to be the perfect target. And listen listen to this quote. This is from an ancient historian named Tacitus, not a Christian, just a, a Gentile. And listen to this. By the way, this is an ancient reference, not coming from a Christian, which mentions Jesus, by the way. Some people say, oh, Jesus never even existed, just a figment of our imagination. But here is an ancient non Christian reference mentioning Jesus. But listen to this. Quote, Consequently, to get rid of the report, namely, namely that Nero started the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, arrest was made, first of all who pleaded guilty, 
Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. End quote. Nero himself had these nighttime garden parties, and he took Christians, tied them together to a stake in the ground, and lit them on fire for light for the party. Like I said, this was the church's first real encounter with martyrdom for the sake of Christ. Peter himself was crucified during this time. Paul would be killed just a few years after this. But this is only the beginning. As you can imagine, this is a hard time for new Christians. It's not easy to start a new movement under the threat of death. But as a testament to the power of God, the faith survived and even thrived during this time. Now, you get all this? This is when Mark writes Mark. It was at this time in the city of Rome that Mark writes this. And Mark includes these hints of encouragement and instruction for Christians who are going to suffer. Jesus, of course, is presented as the ultimate suffering servant. And those who follow him will share his sufferings. And Jesus taught that persecutions will come. That believers will not escape excuse me, tribulation. And that cross-bearing was a part of discipleship. He warned against falling away when persecutions arose, but promised reward for those who endured. Furthermore, Jesus himself was accused of evil, framed by false witnesses, even betrayed by a close friend. All of these things happened to those Christians in Rome. Ultimately, Jesus was killed by the Romans, Yet he died victoriously and rose to new life. And those who hope in him will share the same fate. Though you may die, in fact, you will die. But in Christ, you have victory over death. This is the message of Mark. And there, there is no greater encouragement than this for those who are under the threat of death. So we come to learn a little bit about Mark from this background. A lot of it from the early church. Good stuff. Don't know for 100% certainty, but really is no reason to discount it. That being said, what else do we know about Mark himself from the Bible itself? Do we have any inspired teaching on Mark from the Bible? And the answer is yes. When you search the New Testament, there is actually a lot to learn about Mark and his story. Most people don't know a lot about Mark because he was not in the spotlight. Mark was not a great leader, but he was a great follower. He was a behind-the-scenes guy, a helper, a servant, and he gives encouragement to all those in the church who they don't have the teaching gifts, the speaking gifts, they just 
work with their hands. But God values people like that, needs people like that, uses people like that for his glory. Additionally, in Mark, we see a man who knew redemption. At one point in Mark's life, he failed miserably. He really fell short. But this was not the end of his story. He found a, a second chance. And in the second part of his life, he was used by God in an amazing way. We first encounter Mark in Acts chapter 12. If you like, you can turn there. We were there just a minute ago in scripture reading. If you remember, Peter was imprisoned for the gospel, but a God, but God sent an angel to free him. And after being freed in the middle of the night, after the verse we read, Acts 12, verse 12 says this. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Here we are introduced to John Mark, who is the writer of this gospel. And yes, he has two names. John was his Jewish name. So technically, there are two gospels according to John. But Mark was his Greek name, which became his more prominent name as he started ministering to the Gentiles. We find that his mother is Mary, but this is not Mary the mother of Jesus. This is not Mary Magdalene. This is yet another Mary in the Bible, a different one. She was a wealthy widow living in Jerusalem, and she had the gift of hospitality. The church met in her house regularly. This was the early church house. And we find them here gathered for Peter praying. And we also know this. In Acts 12, after this, Mary, she's got a servant girl named Rhoda. And Rhoda identifies Peter just by the sound of his voice. Remember that? Which means that Peter frequented this house a lot. Furthermore, this was the first place Peter thought of to go to when he was released from prison. And he was familiar with, with Mark's house. Which also means that in turn, young Mark would have been very familiar with Peter and Peter's teaching. In fact, we learn from later on, 1 Peter 5.13, that Mark was Peter's convert. At a young age, Peter led Mark to the Lord, and he even called him his spiritual son. Mark was to Peter as Timothy was to Paul. Now, as a side note, it is this same house, Mary's house, that some people think had the upper room where Jesus met with the disciples for the Last Supper. And this would make sense if you believe that Mark 14 refers to Mark. Just for the fun of it, turn over to Mark 14. I'll show you kind of an interesting verse. Mark 14, verse 51 In this chapter, Mark includes a little passage that no one else includes. This is unique to Mark. This is all taking place during the commotion of, of Christ's arrest. And look at this, Mark 14, verse 51. It says, A young man was following him, Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped 
naked. And that's it. And it goes back to telling of Christ's arrest and his trial and so forth. Now, this is a rather insignificant and random addition. You know, why did Mark include this? Well, most believe that this random young man was, in fact, Mark himself. And if the Last Supper was held in Mark's own house, and we can imagine this, we can imagine young Mark waking up late at night, the disciples had left with Jesus, and he just feels compelled to, to run after Jesus. No time to get dressed, he just gets up, takes this linen sleeping cloth, wraps it around him like a tunic, sets off, he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane just in time to see Christ being arrested. The disciples scatter. The temple police come after him. They grab him. He shakes free. They get the linen cloth. He escapes naked. He goes back home. And we, we don't know if this really happened. But it, it does seem likely that and probable that Mark was this young man. He threw this in here as a little reference to himself. Either way, we know that Mark knew Peter at a young age, and very soon he would come to know Paul. Shortly after the whole Acts 12 thing, Paul and Barnabas, they leave Jerusalem for the first missionary journey. Remember these? The first one. In Acts 12, verse 25, says they took along Mark, who was also, or rather, they took along John, who was also called Mark. Mark goes with them. First missionary journey. They travel around. They don't go too far up to Antioch, the island of Cyprus, and Mark functions as their servant. Acts 13, verse 5, describes Mark as being the helper on this journey. He wasn't the preacher. He wasn't the apostle. He was just the helper, the servant. Most likely, Mark took care of the travel arrangements, food, lodging, stuff like that. But he was a good choice. He was son of the hospitable Mary. And get this, Colossians 4.10, we learn that Mark was actually Barnabas's cousin. He was just keeping it in the family. But not, not long after joining Paul and his cousin Barnabas on their first missionary journey, something unexpected happens. Mark leaves. Mark leaves. Acts 13, verse 13, Paul and Barnabas, they keep going, but Mark leaves. He goes home to Jerusalem. And his departure is not on good terms. Later in Acts 15, we see Paul gearing up for his second missionary journey. And Barnabas says to Paul that, hey, we should take Mark along. And Paul says, no. Paul refuses, insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them before and had not gone with them to the work. That's Acts 15, verse 38. And Paul so refused to take Mark along that they ended up splitting, parting ways. Barnabas took Mark, went back to the island of Cyprus, and Paul took Silas and went on to the second missionary journey. This is a big split, and Mark, we're led to believe, seriously, during that first journey, abandoned the ministry. He bailed. He deserted Paul and Barnabas. Now, why would he do this? Well, we don't know for sure, but it seems like the work of the ministry was just too much for him. Life, ministering on the road, was dangerous, treacherous, hard. And at the time, young Mark was just not cut out for it. It was too much. So he gave up. He went back home to his mom's house. 
And surely he left Paul and Barnabas hanging. I mean, they were depending on him to assist them, to care for them, to kind of look over this missionary trip. And he left. And Paul felt this was a serious betrayal and failure on the part of Mark. After this, ten years go by. And the Bible is silent on Mark. What happened to him? Did he, did he abandon the faith? Did he just give up entirely? Was he one of those who fell away because it was just, just too hard? I mean, we, we hear about Paul. He keeps going, but what about Mark? And we just don't know what happened to him during those 10 years. Before, we know he failed. He failed in a big way. He let others down. He let God down. He deserted the ministry. But this is not the last word on Mark. Like I said, Mark knew redemption, both in salvation and in the work of ministry. The next time we hear of Mark in Scripture, things have changed. We find Mark in Rome with Paul. But now Paul views Mark not as a deserter, but as a highly valued, esteemed, trusted, loved friend. He is Paul's faithful co-worker. Learn about this in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Philemon, verse 24. Somewhere along the road, Mark reconciled with Paul, re-entered the ministry, and proved himself faithful to God, to others. He had a second chance. and He was redeemed. After this, Paul was released from prison. Paul leaves Rome. Mark stays in Rome. As Paul was leaving, Peter was arriving. Now Peter's in Rome. And Mark gets to link up with his old friend and father in the faith, Peter, in Rome. Peter, just like Mark, knew from experience what it was like to fail the Lord, to deny the Lord, to desert the Lord. But Peter, just like Mark, also knew that the Lord can redeem those who have fallen, fallen away, fallen short, God can and does use, use fallen and broken and messed up people. In fact, that's all God uses. That is all God uses. God is in the business of redeeming people, finding the broken, the humble, the weak, and making them new and strong in Christ. Well, at this time, Peter would not leave Rome alive. Peter would be killed, like we said, under that fiery reign of terror by Nero. After Peter died, Mark survived. He leaves Rome and he goes with Timothy to visit the churches of Asia Minor. A couple years later, AD 66, Paul now finds his way back in Rome. Now Paul's in prison again. And the second time, Paul would not live. Paul would be killed. But before he dies, before he is martyred, Paul writes his final letter, 2 Timothy, and listen to this. He says this to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. He says to Timothy, verse 9, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. He says this, Pick up Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. 
And it's a complete turnaround. Now, at one point, Mark was that deserter, like Demas now. Mark was that guy. He failed. He deserted. He gave up on the ministry. But the Lord redeemed him and, and turned his life around and made him useful again. And this is the last we hear about Mark in Scripture. But it's a good way to go. It's a faithful ending to Mark's story. And here we see hope for those themselves who are fallen and broken. We learn both from Mark the Gospel and Mark the Man these great truths about redemption. God is in the business of redeeming people. The good news of Jesus, the Gospel of Jesus is that he redeems from the deaf and the blind to the poor and the weak to to young Mark who just made a, a colossal mistake early in his life. God redeems people. He can turn your life around. And he does this through the gospel. Now we're going to see this time and time again as we make our way through Mark. But for now, I want you just to reflect on yourself. Think about your life. Have you failed in some major ways throughout your life? Have you really, at one time or another, really fallen short? Have you just just messed up and we had this huge sin issue or something happened? Are there areas and moments of weakness in your life? And I bet you, if you're honest with yourself, the answer is yes. But there is hope for you. And that hope is in Jesus. First, you need, you need to know the ultimate redemption. That by believing in this man, this Christ, this Son of God, you can be saved. You can be forgiven of your entire debt of sin to God, washed away, made new, redeemed forever if you turn to Christ. And secondly, you can know that this, this daily redemption that by depending on Jesus, trusting him, crying out to him, that God can redeem you for service and you can be pleasing to him again. Look, God only uses broken people. That's all God uses. So go to him with your brokenness in life. Confess your sin and turn and then follow. He will redeem you and you can serve him with your life. Whatever the case, your life story, for all of you here, it's not over yet. You could have a day, you could have a 50 years, who knows, but it's not over. And whatever happened in your past, God can redeem you and redeem that and still use you for his glory. And do you want to be used by him? Do you want to be pleasing to him? And if you have picking up your cross and follow, followed after him, your answer is yes. So keep following and lift up your head to the cross despite your past because whatever happened in the past, God can redeem your future as you hand over your life to him. This is what Mark did. It's all based on the Savior whom we will come to see a lot more of in this gospel according to Mark. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, hallowed be your name. We thank you for being the God of redemption. 
It's a sweet word to our ears. We love a redemption story because we need redemption ourselves. Lord, we all confess our fallenness, our brokenness, even over our, our daily sin. We fall short. Whether or not we've made a colossal mistake in our lives, we, we sin daily and we need redemption. There is a penalty for our sin. And that is death and separation from you forever. Lord, we can only worship you for sending the Redeemer, the one who would live and die and rise on our behalf to clean us, to claim us, to redeem us. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you and we long to see you, to fellowship with you in your word. We can't wait to see more of you in Mark and learn more about our Redeemer, that we can sing his praises and then we can share his gospel. I pray for everyone here that they would take seriously the commission to share the gospel and that they would do so because they want to, because their heart is so overjoyed by the good news that they have, that they have received. Help us to do this. May we reach this community for your namesake. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.